Okay. Well, hey, everybody. Thank you so much, Julia. Thanks, everyone at Clock Shop. Thank you, everyone who's working the event tonight and making it possible. And thank you all for coming out tonight. Um, look forward to meeting more of you, hopefully, after the discussion. Um, so I'm playing kind of a slightly unique role in the sense that I'm a moderator. That's really my role is to moderate a conversation between these guys. But I'm also um, supposed to speak a tiny bit about myself. So that was, that was the request. And so um, in conversation with Julia, she, she suggested that I show something I'm working on. So I was going to show this three-minute video clip that I'm working on and then kind of segue from that into the main event. some volume. Yeah. I mean.
So, um, so I, I'm a filmmaker. I've mostly focused on fiction in recent years, or kind of scripted material. My partner in, in life and on this project is uh, Cristina Ibarra, and she's a documentarian. And this film is actually kind of a hybrid film, meaning uh, it's both. It's a true story. Everything, the, what you see outlined in that little sizzle is a true story. And we were there filming um, with the team as they kind of conceived of the action and pulled it off. Um, and we were with the team on the outside. But obviously when um, Marco and uh, Beatty um, go into the detention center, we didn't have a camera on the inside. And so the final film that we'll be doing is kind of, is gonna use scripted material and essentially reenactment re to tell the story of what happened to these young folks when they went into the detention center and how they organized it to produce power to hopefully get themselves released and other people. Um, and the, the, the project has presented a variety of challenges. One of them, visibility and invisibility, trying to tell a story in a space where we're not meant to see. Um, it also has produced challenges, like even in this that three minute clip, the first half of it really is trying to just get an audience up to speed that there are these things called detention centers, how many people are in there, that they run for profit, the kind of ground rules of a very complex system. So if you're gonna tell another story about people existing and struggling inside that system, you need to understand the rules of it first and there's a lot of misinformation and de-education about how the system works in this country. And so, um, so I thought we'd kind of, and I think that might be some of the glue that holds us together. Um, we're a filmmaker, a lawyer, and an essayist. Um, something like uh, the Breakfast Club of Immigration or something like that. So we, but I thought that maybe something that holds us together is this question of, of storytelling and how do we, um, confront these various challenges of um, describing a system that is very Baroque, very complex, but where do, the challenge is if you want someone to care about it, you have to make it simple and legible. And then obviously going into that, we're also probably most of us who tell these stories in all these different formats want to change it, resist it. Um, and what are some of those strategies? So in this conversation, I'll try to kind of take us through a little bit of all of that, or, or they, they will, and I'll try to guide us there with questions. So I thought we'd start with super, a super simple one to Carla around, and it's not a simple, deceptively simple question, which is um, a little bit about who you are and why, why writing made sense as a, as a response to your life and your situation. Uh, sure. Um, my name is Carla. I um, came to the United States when I was four, about to turn five years old. The way that that's often narrativized is that my parents brought me to the United States when I was four, about to turn five years old, out of no fault of my own, which is a narrative I've rejected. Um, so I would, in many news accounts, be considered a dreamer, which is, again, a label I don't identify with. Um, I am a DACA recipient. Um, I am in the middle of a green card process through uh, being gay married to my love, who is an American citizen. And um, I used to write about music. I used to write about jazz and indie rock. And it felt like a cliche to me to be an immigrant writing about immigration, thinking about immigration, living about immigration. And so at 
some point, the, the urgency just became apparent to me. And I thought that I was, I was the best person to do it because I was as close to the epicenter of the, um, the, the regime of persecution without being completely incapacitated by it. Um, I was an artist. I had many people in my life who were suffering. And um, I think that there are, there's something to be said about producing art when you yourself are in front of the firing squad. And that is why I thought that it was about time that I pay my dues, as James Baldwin said when he returned from France to Harlem. Um, and election day was when I thought it was about time that I paid my dues. Beautiful, I love the metaphor of producing art in front of a firing squad and we might might return to that later. Um, and one, one thing, at the end of this uh, conversation, there'll be time for Q&A, but I think just because we are dealing with a, a kind of a, a, a field of inquiry that is rests on top of a lot of legal uh, legalese, if there's, a question, if there's a term that's used and you don't understand it, I'd say raise your hand, you know, so can we can have a point of that? clarification. About DACA, do people yeah, know what DACA is? That, is there any, um, so, yeah, so DACA. So that would be a place, if you don't know what DACA is and we say it, Raise your hand. If there's another one of those that you don't know, just raise your hand so we, we, so we know what's, um, what's what. But um, so Akilan, sim similar question, just a bit about your, your journey, what led you to here, to, this, to where you're at, um, what you do, and, um, and maybe how that um, fits in sort of historically or how you imagine it within the image of, um, of immigrants in America. Uh, sure. Um, my name is Akilan Arlan and now I'm uh, a litigator. I, I um, bring mostly lawsuits against the federal government for the ACLU in, in Los Angeles. Um, but I think my, I ended up doing this work. This is a complicated thing. It's hard to say. Um, but you know, one thing is, but my, I was born here, uh, but I was born here shortly after my parents had come here from Sri Lanka and uh, were part of the Tamil ethnic minority in, from Northeast Sri Lanka. And my, when my parents left Sri Lanka, it's largely, I think, because of race discrimination, job discrimination, and sort of sporadic violence against uh, our people. Um, I didn't really kind of think of it that way when I was uh, a little kid anyway. Um, and then when I was 10, the war in Sri Lanka started, and most of my extended family uh, fled the country, and a lot of them came to live with us. And so there were a few years where um, like my father's brothers and both of their uh, you know, spouses and children and his sister and some of their, uh, um, her children. And then after that, my mother's brother and then my mother's sister and all their children came and, and lived with us and for several years in, in some cases. And it just made a very profound kind of impact on me as a child. Um, that's not to say that I kind of then decided at the age of 11 that I would do refugee litigation or something. You know, I did all kinds of different things, you know. But, but by the time I went to law school, I was fairly sure that what I wanted to do was either work on human rights issues in Sri Lanka or on uh, refugee and immigration issues and for sort of random reasons. I, it, it very easily could have been the other way around, actually. But as it, as it turned out, I do sort of Sri Lanka human rights-related advocacy kind of on the side. And my day job is kind of doing refugee and immigration-related work. No, but and one thing I wanted to get at is like the 
I think maybe let's say 20 years ago, perhaps it was this way, where there was this vision of immigrant folks who came to this country and maybe occupied a space that, a legal space that had been constructed by organizations and people who were maybe non-immigrant or something like that. That is that. Uh, could you speak maybe a little bit about the role of immigrants themselves, like if you identify as coming from an immigrant family, arguing in front of the Supreme Court, immigrant folks themselves uh, fighting to define and carve out the legal space that dignifies or expands their ability to exist. Is there, is there a truth? Sure, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think I would do it best by pointing to things that Carla was saying when she first started uh, speaking about this, when you say, uh, I reject this narrative of myself and I want to describe myself this way, uh, or I want to uh, talk about my work in, in this kind of way. Um, and that is the act of um, you know, someone trying to take control and define the narrative about them. You know, for me, I'm kind of very careful to say when I describe my biography in more detail, to say, my parents came here seeking a better life. And they just didn't believe that Sri Lanka was a country that uh, was a stable place for them to build a future for them and for their children. There wasn't somebody pointing a gun to their head or uh, you know, people burning their apartment down when they fled. You know, those are the reasons they came. Just you know, not that many years later, tw 10 or whatever, 12 years later, when my, uh, my relatives came, it was very different. There were actually mobs of people burning Tamils in the streets in the capital of the Sri Lanka, and they were hiding uh, in uh, buildings and later, you know, my cousin, some of my cousins who came later were hiding from the Indian Army in northern Sri Lanka in like wells and things like that. To me, one of those is not more valid than the other. Like, you know, the fact that you uh, didn't come fleeing for your life, but instead only became uh, came because you wanted your children to grow, grow up in a safe, uh, uh, a safe environment where they wouldn't be uh, discriminated against or would have uh, uh, good opportunities. And those are both valid stories to tell. And so in, in this particular context, I'm not sure if I'm exactly answering your question, but it's like, I don't um, want to say that I come from a family of refugees. Instead, I, you know, it's, it's a complicated picture. You know, it's a, it's mm -hmm. a family of different kinds of people in different kinds of uh, situations. Um, but, but I think, yeah, I, I mean, I, I feel like what you, what you were doing in, in that question is even, even a, a sharper kind of point of it, trying to be very deliberate and careful about how we define uh, how the uh, external world and the, the press and the public consciousness, how they talk about us. Well, and so what led me to the, the film, right, was seeing for the first time in the news, I was seeing undocumented folks, because I've been working on uh, films around borders and immigration issues for 20 years, and, um, you know, there was always questions about do we appear on camera or not, the safety of it, et cetera, and this idea that safety kind of was generated in the shadows and by staying out of the spotlight. And around 2010, I started to see something I'd never seen before, which is undocumented young folks getting themselves arrested on purpose, facing their own deportations as a consequence, and building organizations, and a variety of them, uh, United We Dream, uh, the National Immigrant Youth Alliance, a, a whole, um, and many more, many more organizations led and publicly led by undocumented folks themselves fighting to try to change the situation. And this image of the, the dreamer was kind of born. And um, so Carla, yeah, you spoke about like n wanting to separate yourself or maybe challenge that. And, uh, would you talk a little bit about why? I imagine it's a complex, um, a complex set of uh, things to navigate. 
I think it would be complex if I was a smarter person. <laughs> I'm, um, I'm more of an, an emotionally tempestuous person, and this is why it's simple. And, and this, the simplicity of it just comes down to I do not subscribe to a line of thinking that places the blame on my parents for my own emancipation. And I have a lot of respect for the dreamers. I owe a lot to the dreamers. Their hard work has resulted in actual perceptible differences in the ways that we are treated, in the way that legislations are being debated, in the way that DACA came to be. Um, I admire them for their bravery. I think I'm temperamentally a little bit disinclined to be an activist in that kind of sense, and my, my, my world is, is writing and my world is art. But, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, I like to take credit for my own migration. I was here, I came here when I was four years old. I learned English from scratch. I, you know, I, I, I was exposed to slurs. I was in an ESL van parked off the road at school, and I picked up that language, and it became my language, and it's the language of my art. And it was a new world for me, just as it was a new world to my parents years before I came here. And we have had very different experiences. Every time I get my nails done, the ladies who do my nails say, your hands are so soft, and it feels like an accusation. And I understand that my hands are soft because I'm at home and I'm writing and I don't do manual labor, and that's thanks to my parents. But, you know, there's uh, in 100 Years of Solitude, there's the description of a world so new that things lacked names and all you had to do was point. And I had that experience as a newly arrived immigrant, just as my parents did. So I take credit for my migration. Um, something that I don't do, for example, when I interview people for my book is I don't ask them why they came to this country, just as kind of you were describing. Um, there's, there's just thin, you know, hair thin differences between a refugee and someone who comes here for economic reasons. And I feel like if something made you cross the desert in 135 degree weather in the middle of the day with like a backpack and just about nothing else, it is, you don't have to give me those reasons and I don't have to vet them. Um, there's something in your spirit that made you do that and that's enough. Um, and I think I'm just, you know, just going off um, your question a little bit, but I think that um, one of the reasons why I don't identify as a dreamer is precisely because the movement has created a line between good immigrants and bad immigrants, and the bad immigrants would be my parents, who brought me here against my will, and in fact there's like rumbles in the, um, among the right wing where they want to accuse the parents of human trafficking for bringing their kids across, and, and that's outrageous. And if there is a system that places blame on my parents and not on me because I was an innocent child and I didn't make the decision for myself, I reject that. I feel like I did the, make the, I, I stayed. I learned the language. I became an artist in that language. So I claim the migration. 
Um, that's one of the reasons. But again, not to say anything about the Dreamers because I really do admire them and I think they've done great work. Yeah, and 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 you um, even recognized in, in right now the impact of that narrative, as fraught as it might be, that it did. You know, DACA as an achievement. Uh, mm -hmm. You know. One of the things I hope when history is written is known is that that was fought for by, from below by undocumented youth. It was not a kind of gift from Obama who is so pro-immigrant. No, it was actually fought tooth and nail by the Obama administration and that, that resistance was overcome by the leadership of undocumented youth. But for your, yourself, um, is it that you, do you um, feel that writing and entering the arts and this, the, the space you've chosen to occupy is a kind of, um, co-equal uh, site of resistance or how do you, um, or a site of uh, power or how do you, is there um, an, an, an activist kind of analysis to your entry into the arts or is it more um, something that that's kind of how you were made in your destiny or something, I'm not sure, you know, what, what? I feel like I'm chipping away at the master's house with the tools the master gave me, which I know is not how that goes, but so the English language I co-opted. Um, I'm an invasive species who's you know, laid claim, laid roots. And so I do a lot of experimentation with um, the English language. And so something that, for instance, I think that I do is that I try to attack the caricature. And the caricature leads to stereotypes, and stereotypes leads to racist imagery racist thought, racist language, which can reach racist legislation. You know, it's all connected, and um, culture has an, an, a huge place of importance in the political discourse as well. And I believe that the antidote to caricature is surrealism, and that's where I think I can bring that in. So I think I can, through my art, you know, have like some, I can, I can enter readers like a virus and they don't even know that I'm entering them. They think they're reading the story. But I am awakening them to the humanity of people that they might think are two-dimensional because the media portrays them as two-dimensional. And I don't, think a lot of, I don't think a lot of us do a great job as portraying us as not any more than two-dimensional. I think artists portray us as more than two-dimensional. Um, because it has to do with um, being conscious, it has to do with choice, it has to do with palette, it has to do with tone. And I do, I do think I'm doing something quite radical, but it's quiet. And I do it from, you know, a small room facing like a brick building. And it's, it doesn't feel very revolutionary. But I do, I do think that I'm chipping away at caricatures and I do think that there is um, a revolutionary potential in that. Um, well, stories, invasive species, viruses. Um, now it's now it's now I know why I'm here. This is, <laughs> this is all things I love. Um, so, Ahilan, I wonder if you could maybe tell us a story and give a, just a little bit of zoom out a bit and give us a bit of kind of context that might um, give us a foundation for the next uh, chapter in, in this conversation and talk a little bit. I mean, one of the things that when I was reading, uh, I think, an interview with you in, in, the, in Los Angeles Magazine, you were talking about um, 
that people don't really perceive um, immigration law as being a kind of expression of racism or of structural racism. And even, you know, obviously the right has had this phrase, like what part of illegal don't you understand, kind of reducing this whole thing to a very simple image of like, you committed a crime, do you not understand you will be punished? And could you tell a story that would kind of uh, help us see the system in a, in a different and maybe more accurate way in um, 90 seconds? <laughs> um, sure, I mean, I think, uh, and this ties to something you had asked me earlier um, about trying to explain in simple terms. You know, for me, the system that you uh, are documenting in the film, the immigration detention system, it's just a system of imprisonment without trial. And that, that's what it is. And uh, it's, you saw they're in prisons and it's, uh, you know, you wear prison clothes, you are, you know, kept for count and they, the guards talk about feeding the bodies of the people. They don't use people, it's literally bodies is the word you'll hear all the time in immigration detention centers. Um, and yet, all of the protections that the law affords to people convicted of crimes, like a lawyer if you can't afford one, or a trial by jury, uh, none of that is available to people in the system. So <clears throat> I think there's a whole massive legal artifice that is a doctrinal artifice that is developed over time uh, to justify this. A lot of it comes from the Chinese exclusion period in the you know, 18... Uh, 90s and early 1900s, so it's born in a time of really explicit racism, the doctrinally, I mean, the legal doctrine. When you say, is it structural racism, on the one hand, it's like, no, of course, it's the immigration detention system is the same if you're white or brown, you know, or black. Um, but of course, the whole system couldn't even exist. We wouldn't have a system of imprisonment without trial and have 40,000 people who go to sleep tonight in an immigration detention center, a system where we tear families uh, to shreds by asking people to defend themselves in a court system that's more complicated than the criminal system. It's, you know, the immigration code has been compared to the tax code and its complexity, yet we ask people to defend themselves in the system without a lawyer. And those rules, I think, would not exist uh, if the, the immigration population looked, uh, you know, different from, from how it does. You know, in, in terms of, or I could stop there. You know, I, I, could, I could tell you a story. I'll tell you a story on the next question if you oh, want. Oh, yeah, right, on, right Well, no, I mean, I just want to underline. I mean, it's really taken, um, like I mentioned, I've been working on these issues for a long, long time, and it's taken me a, 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 very, a very long time to even understand this, the, the, the core of this, but that since Im immigration law is a separate body of law, it's not criminal law, and so when you get arrested, they're not for by an immigration officer. If you're an undocumented person, they're not going to read you your Miranda rights. You don't get a state-appointed uh, public defender, and you don't get a sentence. So all those po people in that detention center who look like they're in a jail, they don't know how long they're going to be there. They're held basically in a kind of purgatory until they might see an immigration judge, or until an ICE officer kind of decides that they can be released. It right. might be tomorrow, it might be two years from now. Right. And so it's a, um, it, it truly is a kind of like um, metastasized separate right. prison system that has none of the accommodations and normalcies that we're, we, right. we know in American. And you know, one thing I wanna underscore what you said, uh, not to, under, to sort of reify a line between good immigrants and bad immigrants, but just for um, uh, kind of understanding the population that is in immigration detention centers, what you described is true of if an undocumented person is arrested, say, in a worksite raid or you know, at, at their house or on the street or something. It's also true of asylum seekers who come to the border, present themselves at the border, 
and ask for protection under the asylum laws, just like people did in World War II fleeing Europe, which is what led to the legal regime that led to the creation of the asylum laws. Those people, too, are sent to those detention centers where they sit in prison while their asylum case is adjudicated. Um, and it is also true of green card holders or other people who are lawfully present who are then convicted of a crime like simple drug possession, for example, or two petty thefts or something like that, serve their time. And then if they're a citizen, they would then be released out into the community. But because they're non-citizens, they're then transferred into this parallel prison system uh, for immigrants. Even though they continue to be lawfully present, green card holding, nonetheless, they're subject to all these rules. So I think that's just an important point to underscore. It's like, it, it, it's, it's not actually correct. You often see this in the newspaper. They say, talk about immigration detention centers as places where they keep undocumented people. And that's just factually inaccurate. In fact, many of the people, more than half of the people in immigration detention centers at the current time are probably asylum seekers because the, that's the sort of move the Trump administration is making. Uh, but many of them also, um, you know, under Obama, a large uh, percentage were lawful permanent residents who uh, were green card holders. Yeah, and so j just a f about an hour, hour and a half north of here in Adelanto Detention Center, which I think is the maybe the closest uh, one, there's, uh, my understanding is a large uh, Haitian yeah. community that made their way uh, to Tijuana and present themselves at the border and are, are now here. And to think about the mm -hmm. historical journey of that is... And Burmese and Bangladeshis in Adelanto. And uh, I mean, there's people from all over the world in these detention centers. Is, yeah. is there maybe one story in particular that both of you have come across in your work that is like the one you carry in your hearts as the most uh, incredible or one that you'd like to share, just a particular story from, from, from your work either? Maybe okay. Carla? Yeah. Oh, oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so my problem is that I see my father in all of the stories that I report on which is, I've described as a kind of stigmatism that's available to me um, and that I can't get rid of. And so all of the stories that I report on end up being very difficult for me to move on from and to clock out of. Um, I guess one story that moved me in particular is the story I'm working on now, which is, um, on a man named Marco Reyes, who has been in the country for more than 20 years, no criminal record, pays taxes, etc. And he was on a trip with his family, and they accidentally drove into Canada, which happens. And on the way back, Border Patrol stopped them. He had to go through all of these check-ins for years after. That went smoothly, did not go smoothly post-Trump, got a deportation order. And then a week before he was deported, he went into sanctuary at a church off the Yale campus. And I've been visiting him for the past two months, and um, he's not doing well. You know, he's just more and more a shell of the man he used to be. And he doesn't have a case. He doesn't have a case. He will definitely, um, he'll definitely be deported. And um, so what's, what's, bizarre about that experience as a writer is that I visit him but I know he's not going to be there soon and so I'm capturing like the last remaining like light that I encounter with him 
um, and I've been given permission to capture his story, um, but it's like I'm watching someone being killed slowly in front of me, and I can't stop the bullet, but I see the bullet traveling slowly in his direction. And the way he brought this up early in one of our meetings is that he mentioned this photographer, which I'm sure you guys know about, but I didn't, which was a very famous photojournalist who captured the image of a child being approached by a vulture. And um, he took the photo, award-winning photo. He committed suicide a couple of years later. Mm. And then Marco brought up this story to me in like a completely casual conversation. And I understood this to be like his approach about art and artists who come very close to this kind of suffering, don't have a stake in it, and then can and can can leave, but are still plagued by it. And so, um, it's been it's been difficult to know how to deal with recording this kind of tragedy in real time and aestheticizing it without it feeling like an immoral exercise. Um, so that's something that I've been asking my writer friends for advice on how to deal with. If I had a priest or a rabbi, I would ask them too. I don't, so I'm, I'm, I'm stuck asking like James Baldwin's ghost, like how do I deal with this? And um, so that's the hardest story that I've had to write because again, I feel like I, I, I should be able to stop the bullet, right? If something hasn't happened yet, but is happening, but this is the present, time says you should be able to stop the bullet. I can't stop the bullet. And um, that's going to weigh on my conscience for the rest of my life. At the same time, I have to aestheticize it to such a degree that my readers will be able to look at it, feel a kick in the gut, and hopefully want to do something about it when the book comes out in two years' time. Yeah, I think um, it's funny what you say about your father because I think the ki- the stories that have stuck closest to me over the years, um, and I've been doing this since 2000 uh, for the ACLU, uh, except I was a, a federal public defender for two years in between. Um, but the, the cases that have stuck closest to me tend to be ones that have some very particular connection to my experience, I think. Um, so I, I could I could... I could literally spend the rest of our time here just telling stories, but uh, you know, one one uh, particular uh, one when I was um, well, I guess was the proper way to tell the story is to say like I had gone to a uh, a conference in the uh, border region um, in 2001, just a few, actually, just a, uh, about a month after the 9/11 attacks, actually from New York, and had crossed over the border. Um, you know, I'm a US citizen and you know, have documents and whatever, and had crossed over the border as part of this protest that was going on there over border-related um, uh, deaths, actually. And then uh, had come back, and on the way back had been stopped and sent to secondary inspection for, you know, m- uh, minutes, you know, less, less than half an hour, it was nothing. Um, but about, this, this is actually when I was at the ACLU working in New York, you know, and about three weeks after that, uh, you know, another person who was also a Sri Lankan Tamil and was also named Ahilan, my same name, um, had tried to cross the border in San Diego. Um, and he was a, a, 
a person who was fleeing the war in Sri Lanka. This is now in um, 2001, in October. And um, he was a torture victim. Uh, his brother had been killed by the Sri Lankan army. And then his family had paid a huge amount of money to a set of smugglers to send a whole a large group of individuals, um, about, uh, I said a large group of 15, 18 people, something like that. They go to Bangkok from uh, on one kind of visa, then they wait in a hotel for a really, really long time until they can figure out the next move, then they go to actually Ecuador in some cases, or Brazil, and then they come overland and then by ship and end up in Mexico and all, you know, this very complicated process and ended up uh, in the border, came there, asked for asylum, uh, the government found that he, the official found that he did have a, a credible uh, a claim and so he was sent into immigration detention, like I told you, which happens to asylum seekers to await his case, right? And then, you know, I, having been arrested and held for about, you know, just a few minutes, uh, three weeks earlier, finished out my second year at the ACLU, working actually a lot on 9-11 detainees, people who were picked up in the raids in New York and New Jersey in the aftermath. Then I left, was a federal public defender for two years in the border region in El Paso. And then this job opening came in Southern California, and I came to uh, L.A., and when I got to LA to start working at the ACLU in Southern California, Ahila Nataraja was still in immigration detention in San Diego, the same place he had been when, you know, three weeks after I had been arrested at this conference in Arizona. You know, and, and it ultimately he, he spent four and a half years, he lost half of his 20s sitting in an immigration prison. Uh, and this is a person who had been a torture victim and came here because he was a torture victim. And from a country where there was widespread torture, so it's like it's not like there's a serious kind of credibility problem. And you know, I won't I can get into the details and explain what happened about this, or you can read about it actually. It's a case, his last name is Nataraja, N-A-D-A-R-A-J-A-H. And uh, there's a Ninth Circuit opinion about him. Um, he eventually won his case. It took us four and a half years to, to do that. Um, before finally the Ninth Circuit ordered a uh, federal court in, um, for the West, Western US ordered that he had to be released. Um, and he, he now lives in Southern California and he got married, he became a US citizen and he has a child. Um, at the same time, I think he really struggles. I think he really struggles with that. It's very, very hard to recover from the sense that um, you know, just a portion of your time uh, was just sort of stolen from you in a way. Um, so, you know, that's one. You know, I also find in the last, since 2014, I've represented a lot of these Central um, American children who have been uh, fleeing Honduras, Nicaragua, and El Salvador, actually trying to argue that they have a right to lawyers, that they, in the deportation, their asylum cases, that they should be given lawyers, because these are all predominantly uh, people from families who don't have the money to hire immigration lawyers. And a lot of them are children who um, are not living with their parents, or they're only living with one parent, or like the parents are there, but the aunt is here. And so they send the 14-year-old the girl is facing rape or uh, you know, other kinds of uh, violence from gangs in El Salvador or Honduras. And so they send the child with the uncle or something like that to come and live here. And so I've repeatedly met in my office and talked to these children who are in these funny families. I mean, I say funny, there's nothing wrong with it, but it's a family situation which has been, um, you know, uh, not your uh, nuclear family where they're living with both parents. 
And I'm constantly reminded because it's exactly what was going on in my house when I was 10, you know, and I had uh, multiple cousins who were living here either without either, both their parents and my parents were kind of acting as the surrogate parents or, you know, there was one parent in Nigeria and the other parent in South India and then the, you know, my cousin was living with us and then going to Australia or whatever. And um, yeah, those are just very hard because you see so clearly the same kinds of, of uh, effects that come from being separated in that way. And, and it really, it saddens me that that, that group of ch- uh, children really, um, and, and a lot of times mothers with children who came in 2014, more political football has been played with those people's lives than any other group of people since 2014, from the Obama administration saying, we're gonna send these people back and we're gonna deport these children, which is li- literally, Joe Biden said this in public to in response to this crisis, to what's happening now um, with the uh, uh, the Trump administration, and the cute references like separating the um, separating the um, the children from their parents, or trying to deport, uh, charge the parents with smuggling, um, to kind of when they're when they're trying to get their children out of all this, these really violent countries, and it's just it, it makes me very sad uh, to think about those stories as well. And how do you, and and, um, and when you're working in the courtroom, I assume you're 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 doing something that uh, the Carla and I do in terms of trying to tell a story. Could you talk a, a little bit about the what your objectives are as a storyteller, um, uh, the kind of art of, of that, if you have any guidelines to how you win a case or what 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 is good storytelling for you and then and then I guess also Carla, like your framing about your fears of um, aesthetics in these matters and needing to use aesthetics to reach an audience to um, to reach someone's heart, but your fear of making Suffering, if you want to put it that way, or making this uh, struggle beautiful, uh, that kind of double-edged sword of that. So if maybe mm-hmm. we'll close out this chapter in the conversation on just sure. some reflections on your strategies for storytelling and navigating this. Sure. I mean, I, I wish that our primary ethical drivers were um, like the ones that you describe. You know, for us, uh, when you're a lawyer, um, you really do have a primary obligation to try and help your client, and you're sort of ethically obligated to do what you can to to, to help your client. And um, that, and sometimes that can, can be very noble, like it's trying to get the judge or judges who might be from completely different experience, and uh, you know, this all might be very very far from them and abstract, to try to make them. Uh, understand the humanity of and feel some empathy for what it is that your clients are actually going through, and then to take that legal doctrine and the fiction that was that's built into that legal doctrine. By fictions, I mean like immigration detention is civil, not criminal, and therefore the protections in criminal law don't apply because deportation is not as serious as going to prison. You know, which is crazy for at least from in many cases is completely crazy, right? And trying to trying to get that fiction just to just nudge it a little bit closer to actual lived reality. Um, so that's, I think, a lot of the task of storytelling. But it's also true that often um, that means, and in, in the, the courtroom realm especially, it means playing on some of the uh, narratives which are problematic. You know, and like, for example, you know, if, if we get called into defending against the deportations of uh, people who were brought here as children, uh, 
you know, for sure, and, and, and the person wants us to do it and make every argument available to them to try and avoid deportation, which is, of course, the client's choice and a political choice the client has to make, you know, we absolutely will make arguments about why it's fundamentally different to deport somebody who was brought here as a child through no fault of their own, you know, whereas to deport an adult who made the choice to come here is a different thing and why the law governing one might be different from the law governing another. And you know, I try very hard to do that in a way that does not foreclose other arguments against different, you know, that are more generous and you know, broader kinds of arguments and to make our public messaging and our political sort of dialogue about it not be cramped by the legal arguments that we're making in court. Um, so, for example, we say children have a right to appointed counsel in immigration proceedings because they're children and they can't understand the law. You know, but of course, the adults can't understand the law either. Nobody can understand. Like, you know, I wouldn't represent myself in an immigration proceeding. You know, it's so complicated. So, but so there, you try and frame it in ways so that you um, kind of preserve that. Uh, but it's but it's a it's a very it's a very difficult task. And does what Ahilan's describing sound familiar, different, uh, radically different? Uh, how, do you, how do you approach the questions you outlined about aesthetics and, um, yeah, the, the, what's, what's your, what are some of your guidelines? How are you navigating these things? How do you judge if you've done it right when you read something you've written? If this is, how does it sit? How do, how do you, what, is your, what are your metrics, Carla? Mm. Um, so one of the things I try to do um, I try to do a little bit of experimentation with the genre. Um, I try to do some experimentation with dialogue. So for instance, what I do when I'm interviewing people, I'll interview them in Spanish. I translate in real time. So when I take notes, I don't use um, recorders because I don't want their voices. I don't want records of, mm. of it that could be subpoenaed or something. Um, so I'll translate in real time um, in English, and then when I trans, when I when I take what's in my notebooks and put them on word processors, I um, you know I do a, a retranslation again, and there are like you know ten different words that you can choose to translate one word into, and I find that often when migrants are quoted in like literary context, you choose the simplest words, you make them sound like. The, just the most, like a transliteration, like a literal transliteration. And the way that I try to approach that is um, maybe the way that a poet would do a translation. So like when you, when you, you know, read a Pablo Neruda poem in English, it has been written by a poet who translated that, right? So it's been written by two poets. And so you are getting the quotes from the migrants that I'm writing about, but funneled through me who is a writer. So you're getting um, the exact same quote, the exact same sentiment. I take nothing out, I add nothing in, but you're getting the most beautiful possible rendition of that. So I treat it like I'm translating poetry. I believe that is an important step in humanizing my characters. Um, I often, you know, I write, rep I write essays, I write reported essays where I mix reporting with my personal voice, right? Something I do, um, I take advice from George Saunders who says that you want to like de-otherfy the narrator so that um, the reader feels like the narrator could be you, but on a different day. Um, and so I try to write myself into the text so that you feel like if you woke up one day 
like in like the the most like Kafkaesque of nightmares, <laughs> and you woke up as an undocumented immigrant with daddy issues, <laughs> and like me, and like this this could be you. Like you could ma be making these decisions. You might have to make the hardest decisions of your life, but you still have the same points of reference. You still have the same likes and dislikes. You still have the same fears. Um, I, I do try to bring an element of forcing my readers to have empathy by framing myself as kind of, um, yeah, trying to de-otherify de myself as a narrator first, because if I didn't do that, then it would be impossible for my readers to connect to my subjects if they couldn't connect to me connecting to my subjects. Mm -hmm. So I try to do just like little things with like form that I think um, end up working well on the page because Latino literature has had a little bit of um, some issues because honestly because of magical realism yeah. that was very popular in the 90s among the nice American white folks. Um, and so there was a lot of watered down magical realism that was popular in the 90s. And so people became used to the like senoritas and the spiciness and the red dresses and all of that. And so trying to find something experimental to come out after that moment, I feel like you can't be writing about this moment, about this persecution of our immigrant communities without doing something like wacky with genre. You can't be using the same old forms that we've been using before. So I try to use um, magical realism. I try to experiment with dialogue. I just try to experiment with form, which I think is um, like the best way that I could get these stories across, which is just creating something new because the moment necessitates it. Well. Um towards that end and going on from there. So creating something new and uh, toward, towards the future, towards uh, new surrealisms. Uh, you know, my, my own feeling, and I don't know if you guys would agree with it, but that if you're a person who cares about um, immigrant uh, communities, if you come from them or care about them, I think we're getting our ass totally kicked. That, the, that things have been getting kind of objectively worse in the, you know, the pat, by any kind of metric. Um, over the past several decades, and um, I kind of, uh, you know, in the uh, in the the sense of if something is not working, if you're doing something over and over again and it's not working, making a change. And I've been sort of reflecting personally, as someone who's been in this space a little bit, on maybe what I've been doing and what haven't I been doing. And one thing I think I, I personally haven't been doing is having a vision of um, of of a, of a different world, of a of a world. Um, of justice, of a vision of winning, being able to say to me when I go to a college uh, and show my films, well, what do you want? Open borders, asks a student in the audience, and I kind of stumble about. And so I've been trying to reckon with that, that I, I, that I think if you want to uh, fight slavery, you have to have a vision of abolition. If you want to fight misogyny, you have to have a vision of equality. If you, you know, in the immigrant rights space, 
what is that vision? And I've personally decided to come out in public and say, I'm in, I am in favor of open borders. I think there should be a, a right to migrate, a right to move. People should have that freedom. And the border at the, between the US and Mexico should be like the border between Los Angeles County and the next county, Orange County. We, we'd actually have open borders around us all the time, state borders, county borders, town and city. We transgress them constantly. They're not checkpoints of control. They're just the other factors govern whether you're moving or not, and if you have contact with law enforcement. But all this is to say, like, what, what is your North Star is, in terms of uh, what, is, what does a different world look like? And is, is it something that you guys think about or is it important to you? Or is it kind of we're dealing with so much hemorrhaging and so much violence on a day-to-day -day basis that there are other concerns in the here and now? Yeah, I, I think, um, or do you want me to answer first? Oh, yeah, sure. Either, either way, sure. Um, so first, I, I think it's important not to, um, I think, to paint all of the space as totally bleak, even though I agree with you that from the mid-90s on, certainly we are in a worse position uh, in terms of the sort of public attitudes towards immigration, the way the law treats immigrants, all that is definitely worse than it was 20 years ago. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, I find um, the acts of my refugee clients, the acts of the people who did this, you know, some of whom work with me uh, in, 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 in your film, you know, the people who infiltrate, uh, the fact that someone like, uh, you know, Carla and so many other people, like I said, many of whom are my colleagues, that you exist. I mean, when, when we did uh, defense against worksite raids in the mid-2000s, nobody was willing to publicly say that they were not lawfully present. And you know, we even, we, we, the, my clients who were people who had been arrested in the raid in Van Nuys, there was a huge raid in Van Nuys at a printer factory because it's really dangerous, these people making printers. Um, and um, and, and we, we sort of had to train our clients that if the reporters asked you, where were you born? Uh, that they would say, you know, we would step in and say, like, they're not answering that question because it was important to our legal strategy, but also because people were not willing to just come out and claim it and sort of say uh, the way somebody like uh, Jose Antonio Vargas, for example, uh, you know, says in some of his films, I don't know if you, you all have seen this, but like, what are you going to do with me? You know, to ask that question clearly, like, here I am, I'm undocumented, I'm, I've grown up here, look at me, I'm a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, what are you gonna do about me? You wanna deport me to the Philippines? And I feel like, you know, as uh, uh, someone like uh, you, uh, you know, brilliant writer, and you know, going to uh, Yale, and you know, all the rest of it. It's like, really, like this is our, we're gonna, you know, like what are we gonna do? That's a product of the courage of people that that really didn't exist in the prior generation. Not that they weren't courageous, but just that it's a political transformation that's happened over time. So, so it's not all bleak, you know. But with that long sort of caveat, uh, I'm to say, I mean, I I completely agree with you that it's absolutely critical to have a North Star and to have a conception of what it is that victory looks like, you know, what is the world that we want to see. And I also agree with you that the immigrants' rights movement and people working in it, certainly on the legal side and policy advocacy side, often do not have that. You know, I had commented, like I said, I've done this work since, you know, 2000, and I don't know what people who I have worked with on you know, multiple cases or Supreme Court case, you know, that I argued last, uh, whenever it was in October, I don't know what the people who have worked with me on this case for a decade think about things like uh, what should should we have a border uh, and what should it be 
or you know, what are the limits on the government's power to detain or to deport people. We don't talk about those things enough. We're very, very reactive often. And so I agree with you with that. You know, one, one thought I will have, well, one thought I said earlier, you know, like if you think that this system is a system of prison, imprisonment without trial, which it clearly is by any normal objective measure, then that gives you a whole lot of results about differences about how the thing should operate, like that you should give people lawyers, for example. You know, so you can get, get to a lot of very different, clear commitments of what the, what the world should look like if you just you know, kind of toss certain very basic legal fictions that are in the system. Another one is deportation. You know, maybe it's not punishment for everybody, but for the vast majority of the people in this country who've lived here for decades, the undocumented population, people who lived here a very long period of time or who have family members who are uh, you know, US citizens uh, or who are fleeing persecution or have asylum, like for them, it is just as important as being imprisoned. You know, it really is to be deported. So if that's so, then the same protections should apply to people in that situation, right? So those are some. You know, on the borders question, you know, I, I'm not sure that I agree that there can't be a border or shouldn't be a border. But one thing which I think is different from that, it's one thing to say that there should be a border and that there should be people inspecting from the federal government, inspecting people who are coming into the US to learn who they are. It's a very different thing to say that we should have a quota on the number of people from, say, Mexico or Philippines who should be coming into the United States to work in, as, on work visas, to come on family visas, and things like that. You know, that idea, the idea that some bureaucrat in Washington is going to decide this year that there's, you know, 13,478 siblings from Mexico who should come into the United States this year and Mr. 79, who's got a great job waiting for him or whose mother just passed away or whatever, they can't come because that's not the right number. You know, that, that is both, it's a statist, like a deeply statist idea, right? Like it's so, it's, if you think about it, like talk about like anti-free market, like my goodness, like the idea that some, I mean, it's so, and then the other thing about it is it's actually for the Western hemisphere, a relatively new concept. You know, prior to 1952, there are no quotas in the Western Hemisphere um, for um, migration to the U.S. It doesn't mean there's not exclusion of people who have certain kinds of criminal histories or for other kinds of reasons, you know, but the idea that we would just regulate by mass number, you know, for that it's new. Um, even for other countries, Philippines, India, China, we did have those things. You know, when you've got a massive population of people in this country who are from a particular country, it makes sense that then the family-based system is going to be more, you know, fluid than that. So I think you can you can get rid of the idea that we would strictly regulate through the government um, when people can come here, even if you didn't get rid of the idea of a sort of territorial border, mm -hmm. which is an older idea. So I'm not saying I, I don't I'm not, I haven't sort of arrived to a fixed view on the subject, but that's sort of some of my thoughts. Um. I have no thoughts on on the borders. That's just not um, that's just not an area of expertise. Um, and I mean, I wasn't expecting a self comparison to Jesus Christ to happen so early in the evening. But, um, there's a story that I like um, as a race Christian, um, where Jesus is like kind of just chilling, standing there. And a lady who has like a very severe blood flow touches him, gets cured, but he feels like completely debilitated and um, completely like zapped of his power. And he knows that someone touched him. And I feel um, among a lot of people who are working in this movement, who are working to um, in in various in various uh, disciplines, who are working 
to help immigrants that um, the sacrifice comes from within and that it's an insulated community who is making these sacrifices. And I feel like we're all in this mess together. I feel like our economy is based on immigrant labor. The economy would collapse without immigrant labor. Um, and so long as we pay what we continue to pay for fast fashion, so long as we get the delicious salads that we get from the places where we get our delicious salads, all of these facets of our lives are touched by immigrant labor. It's a mess we're in, but we're in this mess together. And there should be people who are feeling a little bit of that depletion of energy outside of immigrant activists and immigrant lawyers and lawyers of immigrants and the dreamers. There should be more of a collective responsibility. And I often get asked if my parents consider themselves Americans, if I consider myself Americans. I always ask, we consider ourselves New Yorkers, you know? Mm -hmm. My parents are more New York than like Robert fucking De Niro. And, <laughs> and, and they're part of the community. And something that I'll always carry with me is something Joan Didion wrote in the White Album, which is the place a place belongs most um, intensely and most ferociously for those who claim it hardest. And I can't imagine many people who claim a place more hardly, is that grammatically correct, <laughs> um, than immigrants. They've bled here, they've sweat here, they've suffered here, they've destroyed their lives and their backs and their families here. And again, we're in this mess together, and I feel like there needs to be a more equal distribution of the, the pain and the suffering and the shittiness of this moment so that it doesn't just fall on the backs of a few people who are huddled together trying to stay warm and trying to stay alive. There are ways where we can help our local communities. Has a child lost a parent in our community to deportation? Can we buy them a computer so that they can make it through the school year? Like, do they need help with school supplies? Can we drive them to the grocery store? There are ways that we can help our local communities and we can all share the weight because we all share the guilt. And this is a guilt that goes back many, many, many generations. Um, I, I share some of it myself. We all, we all sort of do. So I feel like the, the people who are in the movement that I'm speaking to are having a rough time. You know, we're, we're talking about nightmares, we're talking about stress that comes out in somatic ways, chronic headaches, chronic nausea, um, insomnia, and I do want us to understand that we are a de facto um, community. We are neighbors whether we want to be neighbors or not, and there needs to be a little bit more of like a collective understanding that we're all going to help, and it may seem idealistic, but that's what I've seen, that's what I've encountered, that when I share a story on Facebook of someone that I've written about, people do want to help because they're their neighbors. And they do envision, I think people have a very good ability to picture their own child and the child of a migrant child's face, you know, and to imagine their own parent and to imagine their own uncle. And I think when we allow people to have that kind of freedom with their imagination, 
and if there is some guidance and more local organizing onto how we can help our neighbors, it, then it's not just about petitions and it's not just about actions and it's not just about the indivisible guide, then it's about how we keep our own safe. Mm. And that sounds tribalistic, but tribalistic in like the most modern of ways. And mm. I feel like that is my understanding based off of the people that I've met in the past year doing research for my book. Well, maybe I think that's the, you're describing the bit of hope to stop the slow motion bullet. I mean, maybe that's, that's kind of, uh, that's what it sounds like to me. But um, I think we're gonna open it up to a Q and A. Uh, I apologize if it's ran long, this to me. I, I personally could sit here for five hours and talk to these guys. Um, I hope to have that chance sometime. But, um, but I think t the clock, in the clock shop is running, and so uh, I think we will turn to, to Q&A or any cues, questions, any, any comments or questions, or, yeah, all the way in the um, back. Can you talk a little bit about the book and the subject matter of it? Sure, so my book, um, the title I want my book to be, um, which is not the title my editors want my book to be, is uh, The Undocumented Americans, which is so a riff great. off Henry James's yeah. The Americans. Yeah, so um, and it's a book of collected uh, reported essays. I travel around the country. I report on some extraordinary stories. I uh, transform people into characters that'll stay with you. Um, I write a little bit about my family. And um, it's, I think the only reported, the book of, the only book of reportage that mixes like the literary with the personal essay in like the vein of like the new journalists and the new journalist movement. So it's a little bit um, of a throwback Thursday. Um, and it'll be out in 2019, I just heard. <laughs> Let me give you this microphone for the question because we're recording. I just want to ask if the two panelists have any questions for each other. Oh, that was one of my questions, too. <laughs> okay, sure, I'll go first. Sure. Um, I am obsessed with the Supreme Court, and I just wanted to know how it felt being up there, making your case, arguing. How, how did you get into that headspace? Because like when I, when I go write, when I go meet with someone, I do the whole like Michael Phelps, close my eyes, listen to rap music <laughs> thing. Like how do you psych yourself up to go argue a case in front of the Supreme Court? Um, so so uh, uh, I did it twice in the same case, because the first time I did it, uh, it was in front of eight justices and they couldn't reach a decision. That was uh, a year ago in November. And then it was set for re-argument and then I did the re-argument of the same case, which is about how long you can detain people without giving them hearings in front of a, a judge where they could ask for their release in this, the same immigration detention. Um, and I definitely found the second time more stressful than the first because the first time I thought, um, 
it seemed like our chances were probably a little bit better in front of eight justices than nine, you know, after Justice Gorsuch um, joined. So it was easier. I think I was more nervous the second time than the first time. Um, but I think, you know, the, I mean, what I like personally do, if that's, <laughs> that's what you're sort of asking, you know, I'm like very uh, routine uh, based. And uh, some people say it's like almost like, like if a cat were doing this or something, it's like the same exact like things. So I have my music, which is like, uh, you know, keyboard music, uh, particular keyboard music uh, that I kind of listen to and the say like a, a shake with almond butter and some other kind of things in it. And I knew the place that, cause I'd like scoped it out a couple of days in advance to go and you get the shake and then go, go do that thing. That's amazing. Um, and, um, you in the Supreme Court itself, um, you know, there's a there's a lot of theater in it in a way. You mm-hmm. know, like uh, there's this like huge curtain which is like really tall, and then they come out from behind it in their robes and sure. all this. It's like very theatrical, and it's almost like nervousness inducing the way yeah. it's kind of set up. Um, but then when you're there, it's much closer than most courtrooms between mm-hmm. the person and the judges. It's like it's like this distance. Oh my god! Almost, it's so close. They're like right here, and so then once you're there talking to them. It, it kind of drops away in a way because it's just like, it really feels like you're sitting and having a conversation with people about these things. And um, so after like, you know, and then I, in both these cases, we were we had won below. So that means that the other side goes first. So I was like watching the other person argue, the government attorney argue for 25 minutes to start with, you know, and like, it's like, people stopped at the border who haven't come here yet have no constitutional rights. Literally, he says this like multiple times. You can read it in the transcript, you know? And so you're like, oh my God, like what, <laughs> you know? So then kind of when you're, when you're um, kind of farther into it, by the time you get up, it's kind of washed away, you know? And, and you're just like thinking about the things that you're gonna say. Um, so it's actually not that, it's funny, you know? Like all the lead up is, but then when you're actually in it, it doesn't, it's not actually that, kind of nerve, yeah. it kind of drops off, you know. That's amazing. Um, my, I actually, I had many questions uh, uh, I was thinking about, you know, but, but one which particularly struck me is Ecuador, right? Yeah. Um, and is that, uh, do you see yourself, because I often see myself like uh, being Sri Lankan and Sri Lankan Tamil, I get uh, mistaken for Indian constantly, uh, even you know, there's like there's like all this generalization about immigrants, or and certainly people from South Asia, and I'm always kind of like, well, that's like kind of eh, not really like how do you feel that, like, and then even amongst the like Latino immigrants, uh, and there's, I think I feel like uh, it's often very Mexican dominated in some way. In LA, I guess you're not, I don't know how often you're here or whatever, but here it's also to some extent Salvadoran. Uh, you know, inflected quite heavily. Like, does that, do you feel that? Does that come up in your work when you are relating to somebody who's like the person in that church or in those contexts? Do you, do you feel that difference at all or does it kind of not matter or sort of drop away? It doesn't really, it doesn't really come up. Um, most people that I've interviewed have crossed the border and my family came in on a visa. So that is, you know, that, that complicates things. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of like when you're applying for like legal residency or whatever, but it doesn't come up in the reporting. The way that I try to relate to people is um, I'm often interviewing like aging immigrants, so I'll say you're you're my dad's age, and then that you know just it it establishes a certain kind of dynamic. I often talk about my dog to them. 
Um, nationality doesn't come up because people hate us because we're all Mexican, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I am not going to nitpick and be like, well, actually, um, you know, no, mm -hmm. I mean, if you hate me because I'm Mexican, then I'll be Mexican. You know, I don't, mm -hmm. I don't, I don't. And, and among us, like... It sounds like the Sikhs who get mistaken for Muslims and are like... Exactly. Yeah, but, but don't, yeah. That's like, why would I yeah. correct you? Yeah. Huh. <laughs> Well, I don't want to dominate it. I have other questions about things you said, but oh, oh, hold on. There was a young woman, there was a woman in the back, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, there she is. I think she was first hand up. Hi there. Um, both of you mentioned the need to kind of break through narratives, especially media narratives, or I guess misinformation about immigration and immigrants. I was wondering if you could talk about what are those things that most like bug you that you feel like are harder to break through. You know, you mentioned, for example, the detention centers for undocumented people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, what are some of those things for each of you? Um, boy, where do I start? I feel like there's <laughs> so much of the story just told in such a, a problematic way. Um, I'll give just a few examples. There's so many, you know. One is something like four million children who are born in the United States have one or both parents who are undocumented. Not who are immigrants, but who are undocumented. And you often will hear this narrative about how, oh, well, you're jumping the line. You know? And of course, we're dealing with the world, I mean, the, the citizen children are the sort of extreme example of it, but you have tons of mixed status families. And I know my family, you know, there are people, well, I was born here, and there's people who are uh, immigrants who came on uh, uh, visas who were never out of status. There's people who were out of status. There's people who came here without, uh, you know, authorization. And you know, the whole gamut. Like, I'm not worried about the line. Like, I would really like it if everybody could just stay here so we could all have Thanksgiving together. You know, which eventually happened, but it took a really long time. You know, and um, this concept is consistently not. It's either misreported or it's just not made part of the story. Like, if you asked all the people who are waiting in line if they would want to let the other people jump the line, what would happen? You know, and I don't know the exact numbers, but I suspect that huge numbers of them would happily give it, you know, uh, you know prefer to allow mass legalization to happen, if you want to call that. So that's one. Um, I mean, yeah, there, there's, there's so many, uh, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of stuff about the economic picture and taking jobs Right? And this is the thing you hear all the time. And it's the reason why, so economically, the, what the overwhelming consensus of the economic data says is that immigration has basically no effect on wages, but so, you know, it's, it's, it has no effect. Like the wages are the same whether the immigration population is, whether immigrant population is large or small, but economic growth massively increases with immigration. And why is this? It's because immigrants also produce jobs. Like so, the person, which is like, of course, like the person who is running like seventy percent of the really great Los restaurants in Los Angeles, right? You know, all those people, they're not just taking jobs; they're themselves employing people, or all the people in they also you know, eat. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then you know, Silicon Valley. I mean, whether whatever it is, right? 
but this narrative is constantly there. It's very much in people's heads, you know, because their conception of the immigrant is somebody who's going to come and take a job that they would otherwise do, or menial labor is another one. Uh, you know, and I hate that term. You know, it just it makes me so like, you know, uh, if you if you pick a tomato, you're useless. Like, you know, it, it, it really bother or clean clean the hotel room or whatever. It, is, it really bothers me. But that idea that that's what all the immigrants are doing, when in fact it's like, you know, they're undocumented people who are doing every profession under the sun, you know, PhDs and writers and reporters and doctors and lawyers and accountants and all that. Um, and so I, that, that's another one which I feel like is constantly um, not properly characterized in the media. I could go on and on about this actually, but those are, those are some of them. Yeah. For me, it's like a representational issue. Often writers who write about immigrants focus a lot on the body, calloused hands, dirt under fingernails. Mm like backs that are curved, um, laziness. There's a lot of laziness in representing immigrants. Um, and I mean, a lot of that comes, comes again, a lot of that, some of it is due to the, like, the publishing boom in the 90s with like Latino, um, Latino uh, fiction, which again was like magical realism light. And some of it just simply has to do with the fact that we, um, we glamorize um, labor and labored bodies. And so I think like trying to write about people in a way that doesn't, um, that doesn't fall into cliches or stereotypes. There are only so many ways that you can say um, that someone's tired or that someone's sad or that someone's um, hungry or that someone there's, people have just missed so much. Like I wouldn't even know where to start. There's no body, there's no, there's no like Harlem Renaissance of immigrant literature yet, of Latino immigrant literature yet. Maybe this is the moment where that kind of thing will begin. Yeah, uh, there's something that, Carla, you brought up that was kind of interesting to me that is intriguing to impact with these two experts here. Uh, sanctuary. Uh, why is it that the United States government decided that they don't go into churches? What's that all about? And then do every story I ever hear about sanctuary does not sound like it's very restive, finding a place within a church. I'm just wondering if you could expand on both the legal aspects of it and the social aspects of sanctuary. Right. So it's actually an interesting, somewhat common uh, misconception that people have that the government would never prosecute crimes happening in churches. And the sort of formal position is like, look, if you're, if you're dealing drugs out of your church, then we can wiretap the church. Um, and then from there, sort of jumping off, there's a set of really interesting cases in the 80s um, about the FBI and the INS, then INS, uh, trying to uh, prosecute people involved in the sanctuary movement, which, you know, movement trying, particularly trying to protect people from El Salvador, Guatemala, um, and Honduras to some extent, and Nicaragua um, during a time when the U.S. government wasn't, at least for the first three of those countries, the U.S. government just wasn't granting asylum to almost anyone because the U.S. was, was supporting the uh, sort of uh, repressive governments in those, in those countries. And that they tried to prosecute people in that in that situation. So, um, 
That being said, the government has also at times said, and now there's even a memo about this, that there are certain sensitive locations where they won't prosecute people because of, or, or go after uh, uh, immigrants because of its sort of um, negative effects on other kinds of um, social uh, um, sort of factors. And hospitals are one of those, schools are another one, and churches are on that list. Um, so that's kind of the, yeah, I mean, I, and I guess the theory is like, you don't want to discourage people from going to church, I guess, you know, is the, is the theory of it. But uh, it's a funny, it's kind of a funny um, um, thing that it's kind of ended up uh, that way. I think it also reflects something very deep culturally, which is the idea that, um, you know, in, this, in the kind of religious zeitgeist or something, that there's something about that being a safe space. It's like the first safe space or something, you know, uh, is, is the church. And because of that, we're not going to go and uh, kind of go after people uh, in church. But there isn't, there's no law that prohibits the government from uh, doing that. It's just that I think it's politically too difficult for them to, to do it. And I think that goes to something that uh, you were saying earlier, which is, you say, oh, hey, protect our own. There's all kinds of things that people can do. Um, you know, this is really true in a lot of different ways for a lot of different kinds of, of uh, legal rights, not just uh, immigration-related things. Like, uh, certain kinds of political and community popular resistance are very difficult for the government to then uh, kind of go after. Just, to, just in the way that, you know, Washington legalizes marijuana. Like, what? Like, the, the federal government prohibits the sale of marijuana. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and yet, like, here we are, and we live in this world, in Colorado and Washington and California, soon to be too, right? And, and, and that's, that's kind of what, what's happening on the ground. And I think in the same way, that's, that's a, sort of a better account of what the sanctuary movement is than any kind of legal doctrinal um, basis for it. And it's ancient, you know, like the, the Old Testament has cities of refuge where people who have committed crimes could go to and they're, it was like a kind of like a liminal space where they wouldn't be persecuted, they wouldn't be killed there. Um, I have a friend, Ben Woodring, who's a lawyer who writes a lot about sanctuary in Shakespeare. Um, and there's like stories of sanctuary in the medieval period. There's something heavy and ancient with sanctuary that um, I seems to be respecting for some reason, but it definitely goes um, beyond, you know, the 80s and uh, Central American sanctuary movement goes beyond the abolitionist movement. It just, it's ancient sanctuary, something ancient, and they're respecting it for some reason still, but who knows for how long. I want to have a lawyer and a poet answer all questions. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 uh... um, I just want to say thank you, Alex, for um, inviting us to think about hopeful visions for the future and for Ahilan and Carla to share those um, that you have in mind. And one of my visions is that the detention centers are closed and um, that they're in ruins and that these facilities are in shambles. Um, so, and the bed mandate is eliminated. So, um, for Ahilan, I believe, um, where should we put pressure to close Adelanto, for example? Um, what, where should we be putting our uh, concentrated efforts to make something like that happen, like it did in Crete, Illinois? Mm -hmm. I mean, I could give you 
names of organizations. I suspect you might already know them, is my guess, you know. Uh, but Civic is it one uh, is an organization that that essentially organizes social visits to to detainees. Amazing, amazing thing that they do, and then and and really works then to humanize uh, them by just having people meet with people people who are not detained meet with people who are. Um, Detention Watch Network is a great organization that uh, catalogs a lot of detention centers where they are. And um, uh, they did a recent thing which I thought was so great about the distance from detention centers to cities which have lawyers in them, basically, above any kind of basic number. And you can see these places where it's like, it's like 250 miles or 300 miles to the nearest immigration lawyer um, anywhere. And really great, really great kind of work. Um, uh, you know, obviously, we, the ACLU, do a tons of immigrants, immigration detention-related work, and we have various different campaigns kind of going in, uh, um, you know, in different in different ways. Um, I, I, it's hard for me if you're sort of saying like, what's the next kind of campaign or particular thing to focus on? It's kind of funny to say this, but everything is kind of held up for this case, Rodriguez, the one that I had mentioned earlier that I had you know, argued in the Supreme Court, because depending on which way the court goes and that, I think it will shape a lot of um, the advocacy uh, that people in the detention space in particular do um, on a lot of uh, stuff. So I think you know, there's the private prison uh, part of it. You, you say it, it's for profit, and I think that really strikes a chord with at least some segments of people are like, wow, there's whole companies that are just making money off of locking people up, and then they lobby, and they're like, for example, lobbied a lot of Arizona to help pass Arizona's you know, anti-immigrant law from 2010. Like that's so messed up. Like you know, maybe there's a way to get divestment to happen. That's one thing people are interested in. A lot of people are very focused on the atrocious medical care in the places and really trying to focus on that and use that as a basis to argue for uh, you know decreasing it. So there's not a there's not a single kind of particular thing that I would point you to just in this moment, whereas I feel like if you ask me in three months, I might have to give you uh, you know, a much more kind of uh, concrete answer. One thing I will say is I really do believe that uh, legal representation actually, because you know, something like, depending on where, what statistics and whatever numbers you like, it's something like 80% of immigration detainees do not have lawyers, right? which is just a shocking number that, that I mean, that, that you know, when you say it's a system of imprisonment without trial, like all these people are in prison, they have very complicated cases in many, in, you know, in many situations, and they don't have lawyers. And there's this huge, massive uh, set of movements that are going on now, different initiatives, uh, state funding, state, local funding, uh, litigation, which is a lot of what I'm, I'm doing on this, tons of different things to try and get legal representation, lawyers to a lot of these people. Um, that doesn't mean that it's only for lawyers, right? Like, because telling their stories and kind of publicizing the fact that we have this huge system, then it's right in our backyard. Adelanto isn't even the farthest. Orange County is, you know, there's three detention centers uh, that are in Orange County that are closer um, than Adelanto that are just, you know, Irvine uh, and Santa Ana. Well, Santa Ana is not closed, but anyway, whatever, like, you know, like, like they're right there. Uh, and just that, that this stuff is in our backyards is really important as a way of trying to increase public, public consciousness on even just the need for legal representation, which is also something which you can agree on even if you don't believe you know that the whole, that they should all be in shambles as as you do and as I do too, um, or maybe like turned into like beautiful green spaces or something like that. I don't know. You know, but but uh, you know a lot of people believe like, hey, it's due process. People should have lawyers. It's a basic thing. So that's definitely one movement which I think is going and will continue regardless of what happens in Rodriguez. Because regardless of what the court says about how long you can detain people for and what other kinds of process they are, the fact that people don't have a right to a lawyer and that they should is going to remain unchanged um, as a result of that decision. 
I guess we'll take one last question. Yeah. Thanks. Um, Carla, I was really interested in how you're speaking about genre and how that related to your research for your book. Um, and I was just wondering if you could talk about tropes or symbols and magical realism that you would use, or that just an example that would be a vessel for like infecting people's expectations or um, exploding like a one dimensional type of like immigrant person or, or something. So something that I've always really liked about magical realism is thinking of it not like as a, not as a school or as a genre, but more of like a belief system. And the fact that if justice is not um, in the hands of law enforcement or if justice is not something that is immediately possible, that there is something in the universe that will rectify that kind of thing. So something you'll have in magical realism is like, there will be a murder in the family and blood will shed on the ground and nobody will, like, nobody will, will investigate the case, but the blood on the ground will give fruit, will like, give birth to like a tree and the tree um, will grow plums and the plums will taste like tears or something mm. like that, right? And it brings um, solace to the family and it brings a sense of um, justice to the family and it's a way of explaining things, right? So what I try to do is like my twist on that is to not make it so that there are just like private spaces of um, justice that are imaginary. What I do, for instance, in order to, to um, make palatable to my readers the idea of complicity is by merging memories together. So in one of my chapters, which is on Flint, I went to Flint to look at the impact of the water crisis on undocumented communities. And um, I spoke to these people who were telling me about like their dreams about birds and chocolate factories and things that just seemed like naturally just kind of had that kind of magical or magical realist feel to it. So what I did is that I imbued their memories with my memories because at the time I was having nightmares about these people every single night and they were speaking sometimes to me as if I was anointed, as if I could like carry their truth to the world. And so what I created was like a kind of trippy uh, narrative where you were reading about somebody and then suddenly they had my memories that they were talking about and saying that they were their own. And when I was speaking about myself, I was using their memories as if they were my own. So by the end of the chapter, you have no idea, um, was I a character in Flint or are they the writer? Um, it, sounds, it sounds sentimental and it sounds like gimmicky, but I think when you read it, um, it does get you, I get the reader ideally, in like a slight sense of like a hazy panic where what I'm pushing for is not justice has come because the universe has made things right, but rather the universe has like um, thrust poison everywhere and we are all poisoned because one of us is poisoned, therefore we are all poisoned. And I think you get a sense of that after you read the chapter. Mm. Um. 
Well, right on. I can't, I can't, um, can't wait to read it. And, and I think um, also for me, anyways, I think this tonight it's most, what was it? Oh, beautiful. Yeah. Yes. I guess I'll just, I guess we'll wrap up and just say that for, for me, I mean, oh, for, but I, th I hope that for me, this kind of, at least for me, what I'll take away is this conversation uh, reminds me that, uh, you know, uh, immigration amongst the many things it represents, you know, is uh, I, I think not a story about people coming to America. It's a story about people expanding what this place can be, um, blowing it up, ex you know, uh, embarking on a journey towards it finding its destiny, but expanding and, and um, stretching out the realm of the possible um, here and uh, in, in so many ways. And so for me anyways, it's been such a delight to hear your two perspectives on at least what for me is a process of expansion and explosion and um, um, just stretching our imaginations of what's possible. So uh, thank you for that and uh, thank you for having us. Thank you for